Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Job hangs in the balance after Democrats bailed him out to avoid a shutdown. MAGA Congressman Matt Gates saying today that he'll file a motion to kick McCarthy out of his job this week. Senator Chris Murphy is here with his reaction to what has been a wild weekend on Capitol Hill, and he's coming up first. Plus, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg will be live in studio with the view from the Biden administration as the president frames this whole episode as a full-on failure for Republicans. And later, Donald Trump is expected to travel to New York today and attend the start of his civil fraud trial tomorrow. Who better to talk to than former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen? He blew the lid off Trump's shady business dealings. He's on the witness list for this trial, and he could come face to face with his former boss for the first time in years. We are awaiting remarks from President Biden at any moment from the White House. And when he's ready, we'll take that to you live. But in the meantime, I just want to level set on what we've seen in Washington over the last couple of days. One Republican congressman said that the last week was like, quote, riding a mechanical bull. That's quite a visual, but pretty accurate. The president is going to weigh in after Congress managed to pass a short-term funding bill that will keep the government open for the next 47 days. Now, Preventing a government shutdown is obviously good news, and so is the fact that the final bill didn't include any of the devastating cuts to domestic programs that had been on the table. So for the time being, as of right now, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has managed to avoid a complete disaster of Republicans' own making by relying on Democratic votes to get it over the finish line. Congratulations are in order, I I mean, I guess. But before you all think, wow, maybe government is functioning again in Washington— Not quite, because even though McCarthy tried to please his fringe right by not including funding for Ukraine, there's now the question of whether or not he will keep his speakership. Earlier today, Congressman Matt Gates announced he is going to put forward a motion to vacate this week, which is basically a motion to kick McCarthy out of his job. I do intend to file a motion to vacate against Speaker McCarthy this week. I think we need to rip off the Band-Aid. I think we need to move on with new leadership that can be trustworthy. For his part, McCarthy said today, bring it on. So is there an alternative for candidate for Speaker who could get enough votes? Who knows? But remember, it took 15 rounds last time for McCarthy to get elected. So another round or 15 rounds of votes for speakership could become an incredibly distracting time suck. Of course, Matt Gates doesn't really care much about that. This also raises the question of what else Kevin McCarthy might agree to in order to hold on to his speakership ahead of another spending fight. Those members who wanted to slash the budget of the Justice Department in retaliation for investigations into Donald Trump? they will still be there, maybe even more empowered. Those members insisting on hard right immigration reform, they aren't going anywhere either. In many ways, this continuing resolution is just kicking the can down the road, setting up a similar fight where hundreds of thousands of government employees, recipients of government programs for low-income families, parents with kids in Head Start, and yes, travelers over the holidays 
will again be riding that mechanical bull, waiting for a resolution right before Thanksgiving. Now, while some members like Congressman Don Bacon acknowledge that in the House they are, quote, tired of effing around with these whack jobs, not holding back their Congressman Bacon, this entire saga has been just another example of the dysfunction of Republican governments, governance and the absence of leadership. It wasn't just the House this week. We also watched a Republican debate where the most memorable moments, to the degree that there were any at all, are a toss-up between Nikki Haley and Tim Scott screaming over each other about curtains and Chris Christie using a cringy prepared line to attack Donald Trump for not appearing at the debate. The guy who was leading the race by more than 20 points ahead of all the candidates who were on that stage combined brought us this bizarre scene, standing in front of non-union workers at a non-union plant, arguing he alone was the candidate in favor of workers, that you heard that right, during a UAW strike. Trump is also still facing 91 felony counts and was found by a judge to have committed fraud. And he is, he is continuing to encourage political violence. None of that was discussed in the debate stage. There was also a seven-hour-long impeachment hearing on Thursday, just days before a potential shutdown, where even Fox News favorite Jonathan Turley, a key witness for Republicans, told lawmakers, quote, I do not believe that the current evidence would support articles of impeachment and that even some of the evidence that Republicans gathered actually favored President Biden. So all in all, a real bang-up week for the Republican brand. But the problem is their dysfunction impacts all of us. And 47 days from now, will Republicans make funding the government contingent on deep cuts to social safety nets? Will it be about implementing draconian policies at the border? And will McCarthy continue to cut at out Ukraine funding at the behest of MAGA Republicans? Members of Congress can breathe a sigh of relief for now, for this moment. But in just a month and a half, we could be right back where this whole mess started. Joining me now is Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. So, Senator, we are waiting for the president to speak, but you're the perfect person to level set for us here. I want to start with uh, the news from Matt Gates this morning, that he's going to offer a motion to vacate the speakership this week. He wants McCarthy removed. You, of course, are, have not been in the House for a long time, but you do have to work with a chaotic House. How concerned are you that an already kind of wild House could become even more difficult to work with? Well, listen, this is an ongoing disaster for the American people. Uh, Republicans are simply not fit to govern. They're not serious people. And while the House of Representatives uh, Republican caucus is going to go through another round of navel gazing, deciding who's going to lead them, people out there are hurting, right? We still have crises that we need to tackle, whether it be the record number of people dying of overdoses, the continued gun violence crisis, and uh, House Republicans are going to spend the next couple weeks arguing amongst themselves as to who should be the next speaker. Uh, and well, I'm glad that we are not shutting down the federal government. What a what a low bar for House Republicans uh, that we celebrate the fact that they can just barely keep the lights on with hours to go before a shutdown occurs. Uh, McCarthy, you know, obviously had to reach out and get Democratic votes, as he will have to do 45 mm. days from now. But as you mentioned, the price here is that he gave in to Republican demands to cut Ukraine off. And ultimately, American security is at risk if we don't start funding Ukraine again. And that will be one of the big fights that we have to undertake over the next month and a half. It's not enough to just keep the lights on uh, the federal government. We actually have to live up to our national security obligations. And one of those is making sure that Kiev doesn't become a Russian city. 
I want to get to that, uh, and there's a, there's a lot at risk here. I do want to ask you, I mean, with that in mind, there's rumors that, uh, that Speaker McCarthy could bring a funding bill for Ukraine to the floor. He did, at the last moment, decide to work with Democrats to keep the government open. It could be worse, is what I'm saying. Is there incentive to try to save McCarthy as Speaker? So no matter who is the Speaker of the House, no matter who's in charge of the Republican caucus, the path to a majority in the House runs through uh, Democrats who actually want the federal government to operate and want to help Ukraine and a handful of more responsible Republicans. Uh, So, you know, that's the problem here is that whether McCarthy's in charge or somebody else, the governing majority in the House are Democrats and a minority of Republicans. Um, I hope that McCarthy is going to make good on his commitment to bring a Ukraine supplemental funding bill before the House, because what we know is that it has the majority in the Senate and the House. There is a commanding, easy majority of members who will support continued funding for Ukraine. And my worry is, is that if we wait until um, uh, the middle or end of November to have uh, this conversation about whether we're still supporting Ukraine. It may be too late for Ukraine by that point. So um, my preference is in the next few weeks to bring a supplemental funding bill before the Senate, uh, send that over to the House and really dare McCarthy to make the decision to abandon Ukraine, even though he has uh, a majority of Republicans and Democrats who will support Ukraine. Are you worried at all that this potential threat to his speakership could make him put pause uh, on on the idea of bringing up this supplemental funding bill that he's been rumored to be considering? Well, I'm concerned by the fact that when it came down to it, um, the only demand that McCarthy was willing to give into uh, that was coming from his hard right was the demand to abandon Ukraine. He stood mm-hmm. up to them on their immigration demands. He rejected their spending cuts. But the one thing he did give into was this idea that we should end American support for Ukraine, which is, let's just be honest, um, a- an invitation for Putin to march his army straight into the rest of Ukraine. It is a- an abandonment of the entire post-World War II order. Uh, so that doesn't bode well for the future of Ukraine. And it just means that those of us who believe that this is a worthwhile fight are going to have to step up our advocacy efforts in the next several weeks and months. You've been through, unfortunately, a lot of these spending fights before, uh, government shutdowns before. What do you think the next 45 days look like? And and is your expectation we're looking at a similar situation in the lead up to Thanksgiving? I I certainly worry that, you know, we're in for... Um, you know, a series of Groundhog Days where we are just having the, the same uh, fight where McCarthy and these arsonist Republicans bring us up to the precipice of shutdown over and over. Um, and of course, the reality is this is terrible for the American economy. If these hard right Republicans claim to be fiscal conservatives, it's just not fiscally conservative to shut down the government because we ultimately pay federal employees who are furloughed when they come back to work. But it also costs the American economy billions of dollars when uh, the federal government shuts down. Uh, so I-, I think the next year and a half are just going to be a series of ongoing disasters. Uh, in the House of Representatives. Um, And I think we're going to have to 
try to do a better job of making the case to them that there's nothing fiscally conservative about threatening shutdown uh, or actually going through a shutdown. It's all a reminder of the, the power of voting and how important it is who's in charge. Uh, just to go to politics for a moment, um, RFK Jr. is out with a new video strongly hinting he could run for a third party ticket, teasing a, quote, major announcement. We don't know what that means. Do you worry that him running as an independent or third party could hurt President Biden and the, and the Democrats? I don't. I mean, frankly, what you see is that the portions of the electorate that are interested in Robert Kennedy Jr., you know, tend to be coming from Donald Trump's conspiracy theory base. So if he's running as an independent, I think that may end up hurting Donald Trump or the Republican nominee more than Joe Biden. I also think that the fascination with RFK Jr.'s candidacy was a bit of an elite media fascination. Mm. Um, I think ultimately voters know what the stakes are here. And you are going to I think third party candidates are not going to be as big a deal come the general election as folks may think. Um, People who support democracy, who support Ukraine, who support competence in government are going to understand that um, the only way to preserve those things uh, is to vote for Joe Biden. Senator Chris Murphy, thank you for encouraging people to take a deep breath about that and also worry about Ukraine funding, which is a huge threat. It was a pleasure talking to you today. We've got our eyes on the White House where we are waiting remarks from President Biden, and we'll take you to that live when it happens. Up next, I'll ask Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg how likely he thinks it is that Congress can come to an agreement in the next six weeks or so before government shuts down right before holiday travel. Plus, as Donald Trump prepares to head to New York today for a fraud trial that starts tomorrow, a look back at everything that led to this moment. And later, Michael Cohen, who's on the witness list for Trump's trial, will tell us what he's expecting to see play out in the courtroom when he comes face to face with Donald Trump for the first time in years. We'll be right back. We're waiting for President Biden to speak from the White House. We'll take that to you live whenever he's ready. But after Congress avoided a shutdown last night with time running out, there's a lot to dig into here. In a statement after signing the stopgap bill, the president said, quote, the American people expect their government to work. Let's make sure it does. Hard to disagree with that. I think that's what everybody wants to happen. We do expect our government to work. Of course we do. But lately, House Republicans have had a hard time holding up their end of the bargain. Here's what else the president had to say in his statement last night. Quote, we should never have been in this position in the first place. Just a few months ago, Speaker McCarthy and I reached a budget agreement to avoid precisely this type of manufactured crisis. For weeks, extreme House Republicans tried to walk away from that deal by demanding drastic cuts that would have been devastating for millions of Americans. They failed. Joining me now here on set is Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Uh, it's great to see you, Mr. Secretary. Uh, congratulations on your Iron Man. That's quite a feat. So I just want to start with the path forward here, because I think we can all breathe a sigh of relief. But we're not far. 45 days, 47 days is not long until that we could face this again. Uh, and we just heard this morning from Matt Gates that he wants to challenge Speaker McCarthy's speakership, which could put at risk his willingness to work with Democrats. How concerned are you about um, that potential threat and what it could mean for being able to negotiate with the House? Well, not only would the fact of a shutdown had been incredibly damaging, but just having that threat and that chaos that goes with it dangle 
dangling over us, not just dangling over the administration, but dangling over mm-hmm. the American people is not helpful. Now, we're going to keep our heads down, keep doing the work. As the president said, people expect their government to work. And that's what we do. Uh, we're focused on getting the, the machinery of government to, to work for people. I started my week last week, Monday in Nebraska. We're working on a short line railroad called the Corn Husker. Very important for getting agricultural Good products name. to where it's going. Yes, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> perfect for Nebraska. We're bringing $15 million there to help improve supply chains and safety on the railroad. Tuesday, I was at Denver International Airport uh, working, uh, highlighting the, the work that's going on there to uh, rearrange a taxiway uh, that'll prevent those runway incursions that we've been hearing mm-hmm. about. Uh, so this is the kind of work that we all got into this uh, line of public service to do. But as the week mounted, we had to devote more and more of our time to preparing for the possibility of a shutdown. And that's time we'll never get back. That's time the American people will never get back. Uh, for people who plead fiscal conservatism, the waste that is created by this fountain of chaos that is today's House Republican conference really does have a a huge cost even when they don't get their way. If they had gotten their way, it would have been that much more damaging to transportation systems, to the economy, and to all of the services Americans count on. Now, when we're in this situation, in all likelihood, in six weeks, we're right before the Thanksgiving holidays, the Christmas holidays, or whatever holidays people may celebrate. What is the risk a potential shutdown or a shutdown at that time could pose to air travel? As you might imagine, I I see this largely in terms of transportation. And this year, uh, we've seen some of the heaviest air travel numbers ever recorded. Summer, TSA screened more passengers than any time in American history. So American travelers are back in the air, which means more than ever, we need that TSA support. We need that air traffic control support. And the idea that you're going to stop paying air air traffic controllers, Mm -hmm. that you're going to shut down the air traffic control academy that is racing to get new staff on board, which is not a simple process, you would do that right in time for the holidays is madness. Mm -hmm. There is no such thing as a good time for a shutdown. That's the worst. But it's a particularly bad time. And and it even goes to some of the infrastructure projects. We're working on a project at Dallas, Love Field there, uh, upgrading the instrument landing system. That work would halt. The whole goal has been to get that project done in time for the Thanksgiving holiday. This could stop it in its tracks. And nobody wants this. At least nobody out in the real world wants this. So we really need the House Republicans to, first of all, come to terms with each other. Mm -hmm. They seem to have trouble sorting out their differences internally. And then work with us, as, by the way, uh, happened yesterday, Right where the Democrats who were ready to work the whole time with them uh, provided the votes to make sure that we avoided this shutdown, kept the government running. But we, we can't just lurch from threat to threat, potential shutdown to potential shutdown. Sooner or later, this drama has to end. It's very destabilizing for everyone. Uh, since you're here, I, I did, and you are a military veteran, I have to ask you about your reaction to former President Trump's recent comments implying that former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Mark Milley, should be executed. It's crazy every time I say that out loud. My colleague Von Hilliard caught up with him on Friday and asked him about it. So let's listen to that, and then I'm going to talk to you about it on the other side. Well, General Milley, what he did is really treasonous. If you look at what he said to China... Uh, he's either stupid or it's treason. But Frankly, why suggest there are many death? people that would call it treason. But why suggest Thank death? Thank you very much. It's alarming, not surprising, but given you've served and you're a longtime public servant, what is your reaction to that? The, the level of disrespect 
for the American military, not to mention for uh, for the general, is is both shocking and not shocking. I mean, look, this is part of a lifelong pattern with the former president that I would argue was first displayed when he uh, faked a disability in order to avoid having to go to Vietnam and allowed, I assume, some working class uh, person to go in his place and has continued ever since. Um, made a name for himself by uh, under, you know, uh, basically saying that that uh, he did not respect John McCain because he was a war hero. Uh, and, you know, look, a, a lot of this obviously is to get attention and uh, you hesitate to reward that. On the other hand, we, we do, in fact, still have some boundaries that matter in this country. And one of them is that our regard for the military and our respect for the military is nonpartisan. It's non-political and it's universal. And that is especially important because that's part of how the military does their job. I knew every time I put on that uniform, every time I went to work, every time I got into a vehicle, every time I, I went outside the wire, that I was with men and women who were serving and supporting each other and responsive to a chain of command that was not about politics, that did not, uh, did, did not break down because of our political differences. This undermines that. It, it threatens that. And it threatens it at a time when we need those institutions that are still at least somewhat outside of the chaos that the last administration sowed and that some extreme uh, House Republicans are sowing as we speak, uh, we, we need what the military has to offer by way of nonpartisan stability more than ever. And I would say General Milley's been a class act in how he's dealt with it. Mm. Uh, you've also run for president. You've been a very public figure for several years now, uh, and you've been the subject of threats uh, yourself. Uh, Trump also mocked Nancy Pelosi's husband uh, being attacked at his home by a man with a hammer. Uh, and I just wanted to ask you, having experienced this before, how concerned you are about that and, and this kind of continued stoking of violence and kind of echoing of it by the former president? You know, one of the marks of whether a country is uh, free and democratic and open society is that there is no political violence. And to have this level of, uh, whether it's joking about it, stoking it, or actually perpetrating it, which happened a few blocks from where we're sitting mm -hmm. on January 6th, uh, that is an extreme concern, I think, for anybody who cares about the trajectory of the United States, not to mention uh, anyone who is personally impacted by that. There, there is enough that public servants and, and people who go to work uh, in um, in this administration or, or in Congress have to worry about, let alone their families. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's one thing for people who choose to go into public service, although, again, if, if you're going into civilian public service, the last thing you should have to worry about is a threat to your mm -hmm. safety. But their family, their spouses, children, surely one thing we should all be able to agree on is that they are absolutely off limits to these kinds of threats. We should be able to. Secretary P. Buttigieg, thank you so much for joining me today and for all of your work to make us be able to travel for holidays and many We're other things. It. We're still waiting for President Biden to speak, and we'll bring that to you live as soon as he walks out. Uh, coming up next, as Donald Trump prepares to travel to New York for the start of his civil fraud trial, we're going to take a deep dive into the lifetime of exaggeration that led to this moment. And later, Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, knows better than anyone what we should expect because he's on the witness list. He joins me live in just a few minutes. We're back after this. Get the latest updates on this year's high stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. 
When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app. President Biden is speaking right now at the White House after signing the stopgap bill into law to avoid the government shutdown late last night. Let's listen in. Troops will continue to get paid and their families will be cared for. Tens of thousands, tens of thousands of air traffic controllers and transportation security officers are going to stay in the job, get paid, preventing unnecessary delays at airports all across America. And millions of families will continue to have access to critical food and nutrition assistance, especially programs for women and infant children and so many other programs. And the vital work in science and health from cancer research to food safety is going to continue, as will long-term disaster recovery monies for communities devastated by wildfires, superstorms, and droughts. So Security Administration will be fully funded, which means that we'll be able to fully serve the needs of the American people and the elderly. But folks, the truth is we shouldn't be here in the first place. We shouldn't have gotten here in the first place. It's time to end governing by crisis and keep your word when you give it in the Congress. A few months ago, after a long negotiation between myself and the Republican Speaker of the House of Representatives, we came to agree on a budget agreement precisely to avoid a manufactured crisis that we just witnessed. But the last few days and weeks, extreme MAGA Republicans tried to walk away from that deal, voting for deep, drastic spending cuts from 30 to 80 percent that would have been devastating for millions of Americans. They failed again. They failed again, and we stopped them. But I'm under no illusions that they'll be back again. You know, where I come from, when you make a deal and you give your word, you keep it. You give your word, you say, I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do, and you do it. You keep it. You keep your word. And I expect the Republican Speaker and Republicans in Congress to honor their word and keep the deal they made months ago when they tried to threaten us to, with to almost international bankruptcy by not paying our debts. That includes comments made for fully funded services for our veterans and fully fund the needs of defense of our nation. You know, protect the trans. We have transformational investments we're already making to deal with the climate crisis. We are, you know, protect Medicare's ability and power to negotiate lower prescription drug. We pay the highest prescription drug prices in the world. We're finally making progress. Although the Speaker and overwhelming majority of the Congress have steadfastly supported Ukraine to defend itself against the aggression and brutality of the Russians' attack on women and children in addition to the military in Ukraine, uh, there's no Ukraine funding in this agreement. Despite that, I did not believe we could let millions of Americans go through the pain of a government shutdown. But let's be clear. I hope my friends on the other side keep their word about support for Ukraine. They said they're going to support Ukraine in a separate vote. We cannot, under any circumstance, allow American support for Ukraine to be interrupted. I fully expect the Speaker to keep his commitment to secure the passage and support needed to help Ukraine as they defend themselves against aggression and brutality. And folks, you know, overwhelmingly, there's overwhelming number of Republicans and Democrats in both the House and the Senate who support Ukraine. Let's vote on it. 
And I want to assure our American allies and the American people and the people of Ukraine that you can count on our support. We will not walk away. The vast majority of both parties, I'll say it again, Democrats and Republicans, Senate and House, support helping Ukraine and the brutal aggression that is being thrust upon them by Russia. Stop playing games. Get this done. This agreement today, while averting an immediate crisis, ends in, I guess it's 45 days now. It's already moving down <laughs> just before Thanksgiving. Quite frankly, I'm sick and tired. I'm sick and tired of the brinksmanship. And so are the American people. I've been doing this, you all point out to me a lot, a long time. I've never quite seen a Republican Congress or any Congress act like this. This spring, mega Republicans brought us to the brink, threatening to fall on America's debt for the first time in over 200 years. And it would have caused a gigantic world crisis in the hope of the home and abroad. But we reached an agreement. We shook hands, said, here's the deal. Well, now this fall, the MAGA extremists once again have brought us to the brink, this time to a government shutdown, and going back on the deal they made months ago, not keeping their word. Enough is enough is enough. This is not that complicated. The brinkmanship has to end, and there, should be another, there shouldn't be another crisis. There's no excuse for another crisis. Consequently, I strongly urge my Republican friends in Congress not to wait. Don't waste time as you did all summer. Pass a year-long budget agreement. Honor the deal we made a few months ago. We have, the strongest, we have the strongest economy in the world today. The strongest economy in the world today. We have more to do. But we are the indispensable nation in the world, internationally and domestically, in terms of our economy. Let's act like it. Let's act like it. Stop the games. Get to work. Make sure the American people and our allies and friends around the world know what we're doing. Thank you. Mr. President, Speaker McCarthy's speakership is now at risk. Should Democrats vote to help him keep that job? I don't have a vote on that matter. I'll leave that to the leadership of the House and the Senate. Mr. President, what are your words to U.S. allies, and in particular Zelensky, on continued funding for Ukraine? How can you reassure them? I can reassure them. Look at me. We're going to get it done. I can't believe those who voted for supporting Ukraine, overwhelming majority in the House and Senate, Democrat and Republican, will, for pure political reasons, let more people die needlessly in Ukraine. And Mr. President, a follow-up on Ukraine. What is your sense of when the current U.S. funding might run out? And what, how much urgency is there? What's the timeline in the next couple weeks or months? We have time, not much time, and there's this overwhelming sense of urgency. Mr. President, are you going to be able to trust Speaker McCarthy when the next deal comes around? We just made one about Ukraine, so we'll find out. But are you worried that he is going to be forced by fellow Republicans to back away from any deal he cuts with you? I hope this experience for the speaker has been one of a personal revelation. I'm not being facetious. I. Uh, um, Anyway, 
Can you talk about America's reputation on the world stage, given the level of brinksmanship we've seen this year? Uh, based on the mega Republican report, yes. Based on what my administration is doing now. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you. We've been listening to President Biden speaking from the White House after a shutdown was avoided yesterday. You heard him make the strong case there for emergency funding for Ukraine, repeatedly asked about that. He called on Republicans to end governing by crisis, said he was sick and tired of the brinkmanship. We all are, I think. I have uh, Secretary uh, Pete Buttigieg agreed to stay with me while we watch that, and he's joining me again now. So we, we heard some of those shadows of what he said in his remarks there uh, last night in the statement. Uh, you've worked with Congress. You've worked with a range of members. Do you think it's possible to end this era of governing by crisis? I think it is. I think it has to be. And one thing that, that I'm really struck by in the president's remarks is how many times he went back to the idea when you make a deal, you stick with a deal. Mm. And, uh, you know, I've, I've noticed many times uh, serving under him. I'm sure you had the same experience in the administration. Uh, he believes deeply in keeping your word, in yeah. fidelity to your word. And that's not just some quaint principle. That is actually a governing strategy that he has used to build the credibility that got some of the biggest achievements of this administration done, uh, whether it was the bipartisan infrastructure law passed when people didn't think you could do anything bipartisan in this town, uh, or uh, the CHIPS Act uh, that, that also was done on a bipartisan basis. So uh, one thing that I'm really struck by is this uh, idea of really calling the speaker and calling House Republicans more generally uh, to their duty and their responsibility to, to do this while having, at the same time, no illusions about the dynamics that are going on. Uh, the, the other thing that uh, I think is really striking there and that I'm glad he pointed out is it's not just about the shutdown and the need that we can't lurch from threat to threat, from mm -hmm. shutdown to shutdown. Uh, but what they were trying to threaten a shutdown in order to get these cuts, these 30% or more cuts. You know, we've been running the numbers on what that would have meant for transportation. Mm -hmm. If we went a year with those kinds of cuts, we would have to close air traffic control towers across the country. Cargo and passenger mm -hmm. flights would be impacted. Just to take one example, I'll give you another example. Uh, railroad inspections would be cut back dramatically. Mm -hmm. Some of the very same people who were quick to try to score partisan points off of uh, situations like what happened in East Palestine, mm -hmm. Ohio, were effectively demanding with the threat of a shutdown as their leverage, that we cut the resources that are used to keep railroads safe in this country. So I think he you can feel and see as he speaks that he knows that the American people agree with him, agree with the, the pluralities that have voted to, to keep the government going, uh, agree, by the way, with the bipartisan majorities in both chambers that we've got to do the right thing on Ukraine. Uh, and I think that's why he was able to have that level of strength in his message just now. He, he also said he hopes Kevin McCarthy has a personal revelation, which is a very Bidenism thing to say. Um, I, I enjoyed that. You know, he also kind of encouraged members to not to Delay, to just start acting. It doesn't have to be the last moment. There was a similar message from OMB Director Shalanda Young, one of your colleagues, this morning. What does that look like? I mean, it's the same members here who are going to be voting on this in six weeks. Do you think that's even possible? Well, uh, uh, you know, we're about to find out, but there's no reason to wait till the absolute last minute. Why would you wait until it's almost Thanksgiving and all that travel is about to begin and, and uh, every American just wants to be with their family to allow this to come to a head yet again? Uh, I know deadlines are like that sometimes. <laughs> People wait until mm -hmm. the last minute, uh, but it is in nobody's interest to slow walk this. And honestly, I think in everybody's interest, including Speaker McCarthy, frankly, to figure this out 
not at the last minute, but at the earliest possible moment to go into this week and get something done. Sounds like some pretty good common sense. Secretary Buttigieg, thank you for staying with me. I'll let you go home to your twins now. I really appreciate it. Coming up, Donald Trump's fraud trial in New York starts tomorrow. Former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen is standing by. We'll be right back. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Of all the lies that Donald Trump has told during his time in public life, and there have been many, many, None have been more prolific and more flagrant than his lies about his personal wealth. It has been the core of not only how he presented himself in the New York business world, but a core of how he has run for president multiple times. Trump has, Trump has long portrayed himself as a self-made billionaire, a guy who supposedly started out with virtually nothing and became the flashy owner of a sprawling real estate empire, a guy whose wealth was apparently so vast he could leverage concessions with from contractors, banks, and insurers, and a guy with enough bravado and swagger to plaster his name on buildings and land himself his very own reality TV show. All of that made up the, the brand that has long been central to Trump's public identity. It fed the presumption of great wealth and success, but it was all built on a myth. First of all, We've learned that Trump originally lied his way onto the Forbes annual list of America's richest people back in the 1980s, which is a very weird thing to do. We learned that his net worth was greatly overstated and that the value of the Trump brand was probably just a fraction of what he claimed it was. And it's well documented that he was hardly a self-made billionaire. He got his wealth from his father. Despite those revelations, Trump's self-made myth hasn't posed much of a risk to his livelihood or to his fortune. By and large, he's gotten away with it. In fact, Trump has long portrayed his lies as relatively minor exaggerations, something he once referred to as truthful hyperbole, just an innocent form of self-promotion. That's, that's all it is. But this week, a judge in New York had another name for all of it, fraud. Trump wasn't just lying about his wealth to brandish his image. He was lying on official documents as well, inflating the value of his assets to banks and insurance companies and exaggerating his net worth by billions of dollars. And you don't need to be an accountant, I'm certainly not, to understand how ridiculous Trump's claims were. For example, according to the lawsuit, Trump's financial form showed that in just four years, the value of his apartment in Trump Tower had just magically increased by 400%. Magically, magically. By 2015, he claimed it was worth a whopping $327 million. Just to put this in the absurd terms that it definitely deserves, that is more than any price any person in U.S. history has ever paid for an apartment or home anywhere in this country. Trump also valued Mar-a-Lago as high as $740 million, which is about 10 times more than its likely value. 
In his ruling Tuesday, the judge, the judge found that Trump's financial statements, quote, clearly contain fraudulent valuations that defendants use in business. And he said Trump's arguments to the contrary were based in a fantasy world, not the real world. Now, this case is still going to trial tomorrow to determine what kind of damages Trump will have to pay. That's the big question. But the judge has already struck the most devastating blow that could have come out of this lawsuit, something experts call the, quote, corporate death penalty. He ordered that Trump's business licenses be rescinded in New York state and that Trump's real estate holdings be put in receivership. It means that Trump could lose control of the key properties that have defined the Trump organization and him in many ways for decades. Here's the thing. It's not a surprise. He's a fraud. We've known that for a while. Just take it. It's just, it's just a surprise that it took so long to catch up with him because about 12 years ago, Trump gave himself, gave a sworn deposition that should have raised a glaring red flag. In a lawsuit over the value of his personal wealth, Trump claimed this. He said, quote, my network fluctuates. It goes up and down with the markets and with attitudes and with feelings, even my own feelings. You heard that right. He claimed that his wealth was based on his feelings. Wouldn't that be nice? When asked how he put a number on his net worth, Trump said it's based on, quote, my general attitude at the time that the question may be asked. And as I say, it varies. Okay. In other words, he admitted out loud under oath that his numbers are a complete invention, completely detached from objective reality, but nobody in authority actually did anything about it until Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen, delivered this explosive testimony in 2019. To your knowledge, did the president or his company ever inflate assets or revenues? Yes. To your knowledge, did the president ever provide inflated assets to an insurance company? Yes. And uh, was that done with the president's knowledge or direction? Everything was done with the knowledge and at the direction of Mr. Trump. Couldn't be more clear there. It's no surprise that Michael Cohen is now on the witness list for the state, a list that also includes Donald Trump himself, who announced late Friday that he will appear in the courtroom in person beginning tomorrow. So buckle up for that. And joining me now is former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen, who also plans to attend the trial tomorrow. He's the author of the book Revenge. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time uh, with me this afternoon. So I just wanted to start with, you know, given how instrumental you were to this case, what do you think it will be like to see Trump face to face for the first time in five years tomorrow? Well, for me, uh, I'm okay now. I mean, obviously, five years ago when I was going through my torment, uh, it would have been very difficult. But right now, uh, I'm looking forward to actually seeing him in the courtroom. I'd like him to be able to look me in the face to understand that he's created this. And this is the first time in his entire life that he is going to be held accountable and have to deal with the you know repercussions of his own personal personal actions. As you said, Michael, it's the first time he's really being held accountable uh, on this front. Why do you think it took so long for authorities to prove he was misrepresenting his assets on official financial documents? Yeah. So remember that the Trump organization is really a glorified mom and pop type company. You're talking about a very myopic real estate branding company, very similar to like the mafia. There's a code of silence, omerta, so to speak, 
at the, at the Trump organization. So with a privately held company, it's incredibly difficult to understand how they value uh, assets, how they handle the business, unless you have an insider there that's willing to give up that information, which is something that I did in seven congressional hearings, the one that you showed, uh, 23 occasions to the DA, to the New York Attorney General. I mean, look, let me be very clear about something. There is no recovery for Donald as a result of the civil case being brought tomorrow by Attorney General Tish James. This ruling is called a corporate death sentence by a number of people. You obviously are playing a key role in this, but you're also a lawyer. What will it mean for Trump to lose control over several of his real estate holdings in New York? What does that actually look like? Well, first of all, I believe that it's more than just several. Once he loses the license within which to operate the good standing of the certificates of incorporation that make up what's called the Trump Corporation, the all not only is the main company uh, now going into the receivership, but there are hundreds of other subsidiary companies that additionally will ultimately go as part of the receivership. It is a financial catastrophe. It is the death blow to Donald. And I'll tell you, during my tenure at the Trump Organization, I can tell you this has always been his biggest fear, that he would lose money, that he would lose all of his money, and that he would no longer be considered the mega billionaire that he tried to portray himself as. What do you expect, knowing him as you do, uh, given this trial is out there, all of this is just going to happen in broad daylight. How is he going to handle this in public? Yeah, not well. And again, that assumes that he actually appears tomorrow for it. Um, knowing Donald the way I do, I would say that there's less than a 20 percent chance that he actually shows up. What is he showing up for to sit there and to watch? He's not being called tomorrow. He's going to sit and watch as the judge listens to testimony uh, based upon how the valuations were wrong, how the judge uh, Ngoron is going to determine the extent of the damages. And as Tish James, our unsinkable New York attorney general said, there is a baseline here of $250 million. She does not believe that it will be less than $250 million. I suspect it'll be in excess of $600 million. And, you know, one of the things, Jen, that you asked me before about how it affects the company, I want to be clear about something. Most of the buildings, actually all of the buildings that Donald had built here in New York City, are they are um, condominiums. It is not mm. as if he owns those buildings. What he has is a management company to operate them. But for the most part, other than several apartments in various different buildings, it's owned by individuals like you and me, the same way you would own your home pursuant to what's called a fee simple absolute title holder. So it's not going to affect it that way, but he does have commercial space. He has some garages, he has restaurants, he has commercial space. All of those assets, including, say, uh, Trump Tower, not the residential side, but the commercial side that is office space, all of that will go into receivership and ultimately get liquidated in order to pay off the amounts of money that Judge Ngoron will ultimately determine.
So you know him well. You just said, which is pretty significant, that he may not, you don't think he's going to show up. 80% you don't think he's going to show up, uh, even though he said he was going to on Friday. He's also on the witness list. Do you, do you think, and they've said he would testify if he was called, do you think that's the case? I don't. I mean, he didn't testify before the uh, E. Jean Carroll case, though he said that he looked forward to it. Remember, not everything that Donald says. In fact, most of the things that Donald says turns out not to be true. So do I think he wants to come in and testify? The answer is no. One of the worst things is when Donald does testify, because the more Donald testifies, the more he implicates himself. We've heard State Attorney General, the unsinkable, I'll say, uh, Letitia James, give you a lot of credit for this suit. Do you think Trump understands, if, if you're preparing to even look him in the eye if he shows up tomorrow, do you think he understands or thought you'd be as formidable as an enemy when you parted ways? (laughs) <laughs> he well, one of the reasons that he asked me to come to work for him in 2006 is for exactly this reason. Uh, you know, he obviously whoever he listened to that told him it would be a good idea to throw me under the bus. Well, I think he should be on the phone with them having a conversation. But one of the other mistakes that they made is when I had said uh, to Emily Fox at Vanity Fair that I would take a bullet for him. It was at the time it was a true statement that I was making, but I wouldn't take the bullet if he was the one pulling the trigger and he was the one here pulling the trigger. So, look, it's this is all on him. Again, it is the first time in his entire life that he is not only being held accountable for his dirty deeds, but he's suffering the repercussions of them as well. Very quickly, before I let you go, Trump was actually scheduled to give a deposition on Tuesday in the $500 million lawsuit he filed against you. Do you think he decided to say he was attending the trial in New York in order to delay that deposition? Listen, with Donald, you never know. He clearly it's not the first time that he's delayed that it would actually now be the third time. And the interesting part of this scenario is the fact that Donald is the plaintiff. Whoever heard of a defendant having to try to force a plaintiff to proceed with a with a lawsuit, especially one for five hundred million dollars? He knows it's frivolous. He knows that you know, the worst thing would be for me to depose him, because, as he also said, uh, he needed uh, Todd Blanche to be there to ensure that he doesn't end up implicating himself in a uh, what would normally be a um, a crime. And so he needs him there in order to assert his Fifth Amendment against self-incrimination. This whole case is absolutely batty. And I do believe that it will ultimately be dismissed whether or not he shows up for a deposition. Michael Cohen, thank you. We'll look forward to hearing about it if you do see him face to face. Thanks for joining me today. We'll be right back after a quick break. Before we go today, a quick reminder that this show is now on in primetime on Monday nights. We have a great lineup of guests joining the show tomorrow. Former Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance and former U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Pre Burrell, will join me tomorrow as Donald Trump's fraud trial kicks off. That's tomorrow night at 8 p.m.
Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.